Hello, everyone, and welcome to our live stream. I'm Manar Adli, founder and director of Mint Press News. As people join our live stream, we ask that you help us beat social media big tech algorithms by sharing this live stream and hitting the bell uh, button to subscribe if you haven't already. You can also support us um, by becoming a member on our Patreon. So today we'll be talking about the Israel lobby and its attempt to cancel one of the most important revolutionary anti-war rappers of our time, British pro-Palestine rapper Low Key. A British lobby group by the name of We Believe in Israel is putting pressure on Spotify to remove Loki's music, claiming his lyrics incite violence. But his explicitly anti-war music provides numerous anthems to movements against violence. And now a global campaign to push back against the lobby. Uh, the lobby's attempts to cancel Loki have already amassed over 40,000 signatures, including signatories from Noam Chomsky, Cornell West, and prominent Jewish voices, and Israelis, including Naomi Klein, Peter Baynard, Glenn Greenwald, Avi Shleim, Ian Pape, and Miko Paled. The petition has received the support of hundreds of musicians, artists, academics, human rights attorneys, and activists, all calling on Spotify not to buckle to the pressure. Loki is an academic, he's a political campaigner, and a Mint Press video and podcast host of The Watchdog. As a musician, he has collaborated with the Arctic Monkeys, Wretch 32, Immortal Technique, and Akala. He is a patron of Stop the War Coalition, Palestine Solidarity Campaign, the Racial Justice Network, and the Peace and Justice Project founded by Jeremy Corbyn. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in Loki into this live stream. Loki, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you. No, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to Mint Press for their brilliant work and their support. Always. Of course. Well, we are here to stand with you, uh, Loki. You have received um, an overwhelming support um, globally pushing back against the Israel lobby's campaign to smear and cancel you. And before I you know, begin asking you questions, I'm actually going to go and show everybody just the kind of support that you have received from change.org. So one second, where we have a petition now that has amassed over 40,000 support uh, signatures uh, to support you and to basically reject the Israel lobby's attempt to deplatform you. So this is really, really incredible. It's amazing. There's a, a long list of names from academia, which I've named um, a few, and a lot of celebrities and political figures, including the you know one of the princesses of Jordan. So it's it really goes to show just how. Um, you know, and respected that your work is and how united people against uh, the Israel lobby. We have celebrities alike like, you know, Mark Ruffalo, Anwar Hadid, Michael Malarkey, and so forth. So everybody should just hop onto this petition. Um, our social media and community manager is in the comments and they're going to be linking to this uh, right now. So if you haven't signed that, please do so um, today. So I just want to begin by asking you, you know, I want to start from the very beginning of this campaign against you. Um, it was launched by a group called We Believe in Israel. And this is an Israeli lobby group. I believe they were run by Luke, I think it's pronounced Akerst, a right-wing labor politician who was a key figure in the attack on leftist leader Jeremy Corbyn, who himself is a prominent supporter of Palestinian liberation and an anti-imperialist. So let's talk about who we believe in Israel um, is. Okay, well, to start with, if people remember the fantastic The Lobby uh, series on Al Jazeera in 2017, um, four-part series um, looking at the activities of the Israel lobby in Britain, Shai Massoud, the now dis disgraced senior political officer at the Israeli embassy in London at one point tells the protagonist um, who infiltrated the Israel lobby essentially during this time, he tells him about uh, We Believe in Israel and Luke Akers who runs it in really glowing terms. He describes what they do 
and uh, how much he respects them. At the time, we believe in Israel, it's been reported, claimed in questions they received um, about this documentary, that they engage with a variety of stakeholders, these were the words in the quote, um, including the Israeli embassy, meaning that there's a clear acknowledgement that they work with the Israeli embassy. Now, the person that leads it, Luke Akehurst, as you mentioned, he has described himself as formerly a political consultant to defense companies about their sales to the MOD. Again, these are his words, not mine. He was a consultant for Finn Mechanica, which is, um, you know, an Italian defense contractor which had a $1 billion deal to supply training jets to the Israeli Air Force, according to the Financial Times. It later became Leonardo, which today has a lot of different um, deals with the Israeli government and other oppressive uh, regimes, but also it's a long-standing partner, Leonardo, of Raphael, which is an Israeli arms company. In terms of the support that we believe in Israel has garnered across the years, One of its first conferences was attended and spoken at by the Secretary of Defense in this country, Liam Fox. Um, The Israeli Minister of Education spoke there. You also had, of course, uh, Matthew Gould, the British ambassador to Israel, speak there. Trevor Kavanagh, the associate editor and columnist for The Sun, he spoke there. Um, The political director of Tony Blair's office, Matthew Doyle, he um, also attended the conference. You had other figures like um, uh, Jonathan Friedland, who well-known journalist and broadcaster at The Guardian, um, Luciana Berger, who, of course, was former director of Labour Friends of Israel, Wes Streeting, um, another key figure in the Corbyn years, and other uh, figures from uh, major media institutions in this country and also governmental institutions. Michael Gove, who is the current minister for levelling up in this country, he's also attended, we believe, in Israel conferences. Daniel Tobe, the former Israeli ambassador to the UK, and also um, Gideon Saar, the former Israeli minister of interior. All of these people are attendees to, we believe, in Israel conferences. Now, what they seem to be trying to do is jockey themselves into the position of being the go-to expert for Spotify on uh, for Spotify on this issue of incitement um, of violence uh, towards Israel and Israelis. Of course, as far as I have seen, they are not linguists. So the word intifada, you know, the, the particular accusation is that the phrase globalized intifada is um, an incitement of violence. Of course, the word intifada in Arabic is not in any way um, a direct call for violence. The intifada could be intifada salmiya, could be intifada musallaha, it could be many different forms of intifada, but even just as a verb, intifada, is it does not necessarily um, imply violence at all. There's many different historical precedents of intifadas in different countries' histories. So really, this is quite the stretch and quite the reach. Um, I think it's probably unlikely to be successful, but it's not impossible. And of course, it comes uh, alongside a wider campaign to really de-platform, isolate, and uh, and really push me outside the margins of audibility for a lot of people. Um, also, we believe in Israel comes out of uh, the biggest Israel lobby group in this country, Bicom. Okay, so before we go into Bicom, I want to play um, the song that is, I guess, well, I guess it's a, a part of a long list of Uh, music that you have uh, created. And this is what the Israel lobby has taken issue with. So I'm just going to play this really quick. Make sure that there's no... One second while I get this up. This is uh, Long Live Palestine Part 3. Prepare your breakfast. Think of others. Do not forget to feed the pigeons. As you wage your wars, think of others. 
Do not forget those who fight for peace. As you pay your water bill, think of others, those who are nursed by clouds. As you return home to your home, think of others. Do not forget the people of the camps. As you sleep and count the stars, think of others, those who have nowhere to sleep. As you liberate yourself with metaphors, think of others, those who have lost their right to speak. As you think of others far away, think of yourself and say, if only I were a candle in the night. This is for Palestine, of course, the capital Jerusalem Unarmed people marching to the wall and they're shooting them Suppression is a question, resistance is the answer Long live Palestine, long live Gaza Palestine, of course, the capital Jerusalem Unarmed people marching to the wall and they're shooting them Suppression is a question, resistance is the answer Long live Palestine, long live Gaza All you see is war every time you turn your head and Bloodshed on the floor Mother cries, who cries for her this time It's truth between these walls See the lies between the lines They hide where the bullets coming from From the tyrants dressed in our disguise I'm gonna ride until the end Even if I get a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we're not gonna stop the Palestine is free But still you know that I'm a ride until the end even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we're not gonna stop the Palestine is free Talk to not know, talk to be blind, talk to not care Tell me what's real, borderline's military despair How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? Talk to not know, talk to be blind, talk to not care Tell me what's real, borderline's military despair How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? Buturea could resist without a wheelchair Ten year challenge, tell Rick if we are still here And tell that killer Netanyahu he should feel fear The old live through us and guarantee the children will care Criminal, not invincible and you know it Samadun, Samadun still sitting in their stoic May not feel us with you when you listen to our poems You inspire humanity, your resistance is heroic Regardless of talk, here's time we answer the call Through your strength of spirit you provide example for all How to live, how to love when attacked from the clouds above Loud and clear the songs you sung can't be drowned by the sound of guns Won't just watch your tragic time through a satellite dish The least that we can give you is an anthem like this They panic, try to analyse and sanitise this But we love you more than ever still, Palestine lives oppression of the Palestinians, encircling of the people of Gaza, the killing of civilians, the burning of homes, the daily oppression, the theft of land, the apartheid system in the West Bank where there are two road systems, and I've been and I'm sure you have, and you see the, the, the Israeli road, you see like a, a spanking new highway with just the settler cars going backwards and forth, then you see the old Palestinian roads, and it's clearly it's it's people living under two sets of laws, an apartheid system. So all this is being uncovered, and the boycotts and divestment and sanctions campaign, which I support and I'm sure many other people do, as a peaceful protest against the Israeli oppression. Support groups have got to keep proclaiming the rights of the Palestinians are the right to return, the right to um, the right to their homeland, really. 
and um, and the theft of land is Israel is breaking international law. It is breaking the Geneva Convention. All right, so that's you know clearly such an incredibly powerful um, song for Palestine that you've written and um, that you've wrapped and created. It's such a beautiful song. Why would I mean? I know you talked about uh, you know the globalization of the intifada aspect being uh, used to create this idea that you're inciting violence, that accusation. Um, but why would this song in general uh, pose a threat to the Israel lobby? Well, I think it's important that we examine where exactly this, uh, this push is coming from and what's behind it. So, you know, if we look at uh, BICOM, Britain, Israel Communications and Research Centre, this is an organization which is led by Richard Pater. Now, Richard Pater not only previously worked for the Israeli Prime Minister's office, he actually is still in the IDF, the IOF, the Israeli Occupation Forces. He's in the reserves of it. Now, he's the director of this organization. In terms of who's behind the organization originally, it's a gentleman by the name of Pojo Zabludovic. Now, Pojo Zabludovic's uh, wealth uh, came from his father, who founded Soltam Systems. Now, Soltam Systems, as an arms company, became part of Elbit Systems. And you see crossover between Soltam and Elbit with Guy Lando, the current vice president of Elbit Systems. He previously was the director of Soltam. Um, Bicom works closely with APAC. Its former director, Daniel Sheck, stated the following. APAC is assisting BICOM with developing grassroots networks in Britain. Now, it's very likely that we believe in Israel is one of those networks that APAC, APAC assisted BICOM with developing. It's well known. APAC is the largest and most famous Israel lobby group in the world, um, concentrated in the US on Congress. You also have two of the fellows of BICOM, Michael Herzog and uh, Tal Becker, are also fellows of the APAC think tank, the Washington Institute for Near East policy. Uh, the director I mentioned, Daniel Sheck, actually um, went on to be the Israeli ambassador to Paris. Um, we also know that, you know, as an organization, it was founded during the Second Intifada as a crisis PR nerve center, mm -hmm. essentially to uh, amplify the ideas of the Israeli government and to try to affect the way in which what was happening in Palestine was being presented. And in fact, you had a former BBC editor appointed as its director in September 2001. And not only did he go from working for the BBC to working as an Israel lobbyist, he then, after that finishing at Bicom, went back to the BBC where he worked on major flagship shows of the BBC like Hard Talk. Um, another figure that came out of Bicom is Ruth Smith. So she was the director of public affairs and campaigns. And Daniel Sheck, the former director that I mentioned, said that Ruth Smith was appointed to strengthen the group's relations with the Foreign Office, party leaders, think tanks and academia. Of course, Ruth, Ruth Smith is um, a Labour MP who was very prominent in the Corbyn years campaigning against him. Um, she also was identified by WikiLeaks in U.S. embassy cables as being a strictly protect informant of the U.S. embassy. Her husband um, is a key part of the British American Project, which is an organization that is funded by the U.S. embassy and BAE Systems and works to essentially um, steer the left in this country towards the orthodoxies of NATO and the U.S. Government. In terms of the connections between BICOM and the Israeli government, not only do we have in August 2006, when the Israeli ambassador to Italy, Gideon Mir, came to this country, visited this country, he was accompanied um, by a BICOM representative. But also, in addition to that, we have reports showing that when the university and college union voted to support an academic boycott of Israel, there was a large mobilization of many of the different Israel lobby groups in this country. But particularly, it was identified that this campaign against 
um, the academic boycott of Israel was coordinated between these groups, including BICOM and the Israeli embassy. So we have a clear um, bond here between BICOM and the Israeli embassy. It's an undeniable connection, actually. Um, and also, you know, despite the fact that you have no formal and acknowledged relationship between the conservative, you know, official merging between the conservative Friends of Israel and BICOM, you have quite a lot of coordination. So, for example, Pojo Zabludovic, who we mentioned um, as, uh, you know, one of the founders of BICOM and the chair of BICOM and the funder of BICOM, he is also a funder of the Conservative Party. You also wow. have Trevor Pierce and Michael Lewis, um, who are key figures in BICOM, who are also key figures in the Conservative Friends of Israel. But then at the same time in BICOM, as I pointed out with Ruth Smith, you have key Labour figures. So Trevor Chin is highly placed at uh, BICOM, and he also uh, funded not only Keir Starmer, he funded also Lisa Landy in the Labour Party, who's simultaneous to being funded by Trevor Chin, an Israel lobbyist, led the Labour Friends of Palestine. So, I mean, you know, with friends like this, of course, who needs enemies. Of right. course, BICOM was also led um, at one point by the former Labour MP Lorna Fitzsimmons. Um, and in fact, in quite a, uh, a funny episode in 2011, she intended to send out a, an email to the, um, the donors to BICOM to explain the work that they do and, and explain how successful they were in their work and particularly boasting about their access at the BBC. Um, and unfortunately for Lorna Fitzsimmons, instead of sending it out to her donors, she sent it out to all her media contacts. So in 2011, that became clear. And actually, uh, former BBC correspondent Tim Llewellyn um, said the following about BICOM. He said, organisations such as Bicom have hundreds of thousands of pounds at their disposal, much of it coming directly from the United States, which sends a third of its whole global foreign aid budget to Israel's six million citizens. This great flow of funds bypasses most ordinary Israelis and goes straight to the projection of Zionist causes and colonialism wherever it might be needed. These funds prop up here in the United Kingdom, not just BICOM, but organisations such as Labour Friends of Israel, close to the heart of Tony Blair. So Tim Llewellyn is uh, the person that said this, not me. And as a BBC correspondent, he would be very well placed to know quite a lot about the ins and outs of BICOM. And of course, as Shai Massoud says in his in his uh, glowing reference for Luke Akehurst and We Believe in Israel in the Lobby documentary, Shai Massoud says BICOM and We Believe in Israel share the same office. You know, this is a very, very clear line between We Believe in Israel, BICOM and the Israeli embassy and this is one element one aspect right. of the campaign not only against me but you know without a doubt the activity mm -hmm. of ICOM would be one of the reasons you know the activities over these years of lobbying journalists and others um, for Israel would be part of the reason that you've had uh, four Palestinians killed yesterday in the West yeah. Bank and barely a mention of it you know including a, a 47-year-old partially blind widow and mother of six children who was unarmed and was shot down by Israeli occupation forces in Bethlehem. And you have received barely a mention of it in the British media today. And that is no doubt, you know, BICOM, among other organizations, have been part of the reason that that type of information is put in such a place where it's, you know, it's problematic to bring up because people are in fear of being harassed um, with letters yeah. and emails and, and other things like that. Well, and it's the same thing in the US within, you know, West, you know, United American <laughs> corporate mainstream media. Uh, the Israel lobby has infiltrated uh, most of the mass media. I mean, if you look at just the New York Times, the New York Times bureau chief in Jerusalem is built upon a Palestinian home. They ethnically cleansed a Palestinian family to build the bureau office of the New York Times in Jerusalem. And so there's no question that um, the, the way the mainstream corporate media 
if they do report on these things, it will always be through the lens of a pro-Israel uh, perspective. And when it comes to BICOM, I'm curious to know uh, their relationship with the Israeli app, ACT-IL, ACT.IL, uh, which is funded uh, by Sheldon, the late Sheldon Adelson. Um, and that is also responsible for the way Israel is portrayed um, online. It's basically like an Israeli troll army that controls the narrative and message about um, Israel. And we saw that really take place and just the power of this app um, during like Israel's recent um, you know, genocide in Gaza when it was bombing Gaza with U.S. supplied missiles in May of last year. Um, and this app, this troll army was basically, you know, portraying Palestinians as, you know, human shields for Hamas and uh, that Israel was only targeting, you know, terrorists. Uh, talk to me about that relationship with this um, app, Sheldon Adelson, APAC, and this push to control the narrative about Israel? Well, I think the important thing for people to to be aware of with ACT.IL, um, yeah. the, the phone app, which um, also was mobilized around my case. So yeah. it's one of the groups that were discreetly set up by the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which battled for support um, for uh, which was battling against support for BDS um, internationally. Um, Act.il was, you know, well funded with a budget of one million dollars. Um, a lot of it came from Sheldon Adelson as well, who's one of, if not the largest funder of Israeli settlement activity in human history. And the aim of the app um, was to mobilize electronic armies to insert themselves into conversations in what they called a sort of new kind of war and now you know essentially what the um, connection is is that the act.il app had as one of their partners um, we believe in israel so there's a lot of different moving parts that this is a part of and um you know those moving parts work with each other in different ways and cooperate on different projects. You know, I see this essentially as an extension of the war against um, freedom of expression for Palestinians within Palestine. So, you know, you look at, for example, the Palestinian Prisoner Studies Center found that between 2015 and 2018, there were 500 at least Palestinians who were arrested for things that they'd written on social media. Um, among them were children. Um, of course, you have examples like Tamara Abu Leban, who you know was a 15-year-old, and she updated her Facebook uh, status with the word forgive me in Arabic. Now, this doesn't seem like a major problem, right? Well, Israeli police arrested and detained her and raided her house after that. You also have the another example where a uh, man put the word sabah al-khair on his Facebook. And actually what happened was that was mistranslated um, into Hebrew um, to mean attack them. And this man was also arrested you have and another that, example. And, that, and that means sabah al-khair means good morning <laughs> yes exactly it means yeah. good morning uh, you also have another example uh, like darin tatur uh, the the poet um from 1948 um palestine the green line now she wrote yeah. a uh, poem called qawim ya sha'bi qawim resist them now simply for putting this poem on um, her Facebook, you know, and I'll, I'll read some of it now. It says, resist my people, resist them. In Jerusalem, I dressed my wounds and breathed my sorrows and carried the soul in my palm for an Arab Palestine. I will not succumb to the peaceful solution. Never lower my flags until I evict them from my land. I cast them aside for a coming time. Resist my people, resist them. Resist the settlers' robbery and follow the caravan of martyrs. Shred the disgraceful constitution which imposed degre degradation and humiliation. Um, she goes on, but what happened to Darin Tatur was that she was then 
arrested and uh, went through a three-year ordeal of jail, house arrest. Um, and when eventually she was released, she told an amazing story about how when she was in the prison, you know, let's remember she was arrested for putting a poem on Facebook right. um, uh, with the allegation that it was um, equal to incitement. She asked for a pen and paper when she was in prison. And she was told, you, especially you, will not have a pen and paper. Mm -hmm. And so what she was able to do was take her zipper off of her jacket and fashion it along with a paracetamol tablet into something that could write on the walls. And when she came out of uh, prison, uh, she had this beautiful poem called A Poet Behind Bars. And this is, uh, this is how, it, how it goes. In prison, I met people too numerous to count, killer and criminal, thief and liar, the honest and those who disbelieve, the lost and confused, the wretched and the hungry. Then the sick of my homeland, born out of pain, refused to go along with injustice until they became children whose innocence was violated. The world's compulsion left them stunned. And she, when she came out of prison, and this has been, you know, not massively publicized, was actually given an award by um, Oxfam, the Oxfam Novib Pen Award for Freedom of Expression in The Hague. Um, and so this is really a massive thing for somebody whose freedom of expression has been um, completely shut down in the name of um you know, Israel's security. She had another beautiful poem called uh, My Freedom. And this is how it went. My freedom. They closed the door on me in a cell. They locked the handcuffs, tightened the grip. They banned the light from coming in and it grew darker. So I drew a bulb on the walls. They wiped the wall and seized my firefly. So the sun in my eyes glowed in the night. They covered my eyes and gagged my mouth. And I let the poetry in my heart light it up. And I ignited the feelings within my soul. The lantern of my poems erased the darkness. They can tie my hands with chains, but they won't imprison the pulse of life within me. My freedom, my freedom, my freedom. They'll never kill that feeling inside me. You know, and of course, Victor E. Frankel um, uh, wrote a beautiful book about how he was able to survive the Holocaust, in which he said, a person that has a why can bear any how. And it is that why which uh, pushed and motivated somebody like Darin Tartor to survive what she has. You know, as James Baldwin said, the role of the artist is to make you respect the moment the baby is born above all other moments. And essentially, that is what we are trying to do. We are trying to assert the sanctity of Palestinian life in the face of really this um, massive um, uh, juggernaut, military juggernaut, which, you know, we have to remember that when we look at this wider issue of uh, whether it's social media companies or apps being used and wielded against Palestinian expression, that you have within Facebook, for example, um, Amy Palmer, sitting on its board, which regulates content. It's a 20-person board. And who is Emi Palmer? Well, she came out of Unit 8200, which is the unit in the IDF which monitors um, Palestinian electronic communication and has been found to use that information to not only identify potential collaborators, but also to blackmail Palestinians with information that is procured through this infrastructure of surveillance. And of course, that is corroborated by a letter which was published in September 2014 by 43 um, soldiers who had served in the IDF and really refused to continue their work there and condemned it as a widespread surveillance of innocent civilians. Um, Amy Palmer not only came out of Unit 8200. She then worked for the Israeli Ministry of Justice. But then on top of that was the um, head of the Land Council um, in the Israeli state, which is responsible for displacing so many 
Palestinian people and divvying up the land to new incoming settlers. You also, of course, have the cyber unit, which um, has worked very closely with Facebook, Twitter and YouTube on invisibilizing Palestinian dissent online. Um, we know that 85 percent of the requests that have come from the cyber unit to Facebook have been acquiesced to. Um, you know, we also know that many different uh, Palestinian organizations, media organizations have had their websites shut down, like uh, Safat News Agency. Um, it also had the accounts of 14 of uh, the personal accounts of 14 different journalists, managers and editors associated with the page also had their Facebook accounts taken down. So, you know, what is happening to me or what is being um, attempted with me is an extension of that which is being practiced as business as usual, essentially, on uh, Palestinians, unfortunately. And it's the exporting of that particular model of suppression to other places in the world. Of course, I'm you know, one of the extremely fortunate and lucky people who has a greater level of visibility, which makes it harder for you to take that visibility away. But, you know, this same model has been rolled out across uh, this country through the Corbyn years. And, you you know, you see yeah. the appointment of Asaf Kaplan from Unit 8200 into the Labour Party to work on social listening. Well, what does that mean? That probably means um, going across people with a fine, with a fine uh, tooth comb through people's social media accounts and then using that information to um, disqualify people from political subjectivity in this country, to say that they have no right to political affiliation to one of the main parties in this country. So as I say, you know, all of this is very much an extension of what has been experimented in Palestine and then been taken out. And I just want to share a clip of um, Ghassan Kanafani really quick, because, you know, as you say, this is not the first time Israel nor the Israel lobby has targeted a musician or an artist. Um, we have to remember that uh, Israel's Mossad actually targeted and smeared and eventually assassinated um, famous author and artist Ghassan Kanafani in 1972 in Beirut in Lebanon. And he was the leader of the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine and he actually never held a weapon in his life. And all the people that you mentioned, Loki, they never held a weapon in their life. And yet they were treated uh, violently. So it was his words and his pen that just like your words um, and your music pose a threat to Israel's occupation um, and apartheid. So as the old saying goes, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword. So let me just play this clip really quickly. It's a famous clip from Ghassan Kanafani. Which, as far as I understand... Okay, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Well, as far as I understand, um, Jewish Voice for Peace put this up on Instagram um, just yeah. a few days ago. And yeah. actually, it was, again, taken down. Um, and Palestine on a plate, the uh, Instagram page, was it had the post taken down and then was threatened with being closed for posting it as far as I understand. So I think they actually, and, and you are correct, but I think that it's back up because I actually have this right. up from their page. So let's From let's their page. It. Okay, great. Why won't your organization engage in peace talks with the Israelis? You don't mean exactly peace talks. You mean capitulation, surrendering. Why not just talk? Talk to whom? Talk to the Israeli leaders. That's kind of conversation between the sword and the neck, you mean? Well, if there were no swords and no guns in the room, you could still talk. No, I haven't been, I had never seen any talk between a colonialist case and a national liberation movement. But despite this, why not talk? Talk about what? Talk about the possibility of not fighting. Not fighting for what? Not fighting at all, no matter what for. 
يعني people usually fight for something and they stop fighting for something. So you can't tell me even why should we speak about what? Stop fighting. Or, what? Or, or talk about stop fighting why? Talk to stop fighting to stop the death and the misery, the destruction, the pain. The misery and the destruction and the pain and the death of whom? Of Palestinians, of Israelis, of Arabs. Of the Palestinian people who are uprooted, thrown in the camps, living in starvation, killed for 20 years, and uh, forbidden to use even the name Palestinians. They're better that way than dead, though. Maybe to you, but to us, it's not. To us, to liberate our country, to have dignity, to have respect, to have our mere human rights, is something as essential as life itself. Why won't your organization engage in... Absolutely beautiful and powerful words from Ghassan Kanafani, um, which is really a testament to what Palestinians are really struggling until today to have their voices uh, being heard. And in the way that, you know, we're forced, as Palestinians, we're forced into a corner in the way that we are allowed to talk about Palestine or else, you know, the you know thought police of Israel are going to uh, target us um, in the way that we speak about Palestine. Um, so I want to talk about BDS here really quick because right just, now... Sorry, just just I, I would urge everybody who watches this and sees this to read carefully Ghassan Kanafani's beautiful works, Return to Haifa or um, Men in the Sun, because what they illustrate, so for example, with Return to Haifa, the way it discredits uh, the Zionist project is really quite interesting and subversive because the story is of a couple who had a six-month-old baby in 1948 at the time of the Nakba um, who they called Khaldun. Now they left Khaldun by a mistake you know they had intended to keep him with them but by a mistake they left him behind and um, you know they were terribly torn up about this for all of these years, for these 19 years between 1948 and 1967. And in 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank, one of the ironies of it was they opened the space for some Palestinians at different junctures, at different points to enter and see um, where they'd come from in 1948 and to actually sort of return back temporarily And, and this couple are depicted, you know, it's a fictitious story and it's, you know, it's not true, but it could have been. Right. They go back to the house in which they left Khaldun and Khaldun has been raised as mm -hmm. an Israeli, goes by the name Dov um, and, and is 19 and is in the army. And so this Palestinian family, and, and, and that's the beautiful thing about the story is that it discredits these very stubborn and, and, and deep ideas of identity. It problematizes that um, intransigence of identity by saying that this is a Palestinian baby that has now been raised as an Israeli and is part of the, 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 the violent juggernaut um, that we're talking about. And, uh, and, and, and you know, Saeed, the main character, is, is deeply heartbroken to see his uh, child become like this. And it's really deeply, deeply touching and deeply excruciating. And so I suggest that, you know, and that was, of course, part of the reason why Ghassan Kanafani was, uh, was killed in the way he was. As you said, Saad Abu Khalil and others have asserted that Ghassan Kanafani never touched a weapon. However, it was his brilliant writings which uh, discredited the Zionist project in such a clear Um, way you know another beautiful book of his men in the sun is something that really articulates the the pain of people living in sort of permanent exile and the kind of situations that they've been forced into you know it features these men who end up suffocating to death in the back of a container when attempting to pass between iraq and kuwait looking for work you know the struggle of these four different generations of uh, four to five generations now of palestinians who have been in permanent exile without belonging uh, you know mistreated by the governments in the places they are you know he was such a beautiful and important 
writer for people to study in terms of you know the the targeting of artists or literary yeah. figures you also have the example of Najin Ali um he was somebody who was a cartoonist um who did great work and who was killed here in London um with the apparent involvement of Israeli intelligence services so uh, your next question about BDS Yeah well um you know BDS is obviously the one of the biggest threats that Israel faces right now even with Israeli politicians saying that BDS is a threat to Israel they've they've admitted this in the past um you know the pro Israel lobby has suffered a series of um embarrassing international defeats um one was where dozens of acts pulled out of the Sydney festival in Australia and you were following that story you did a really brilliant podcast about that because of their ties to directly to the Israeli embassy um could you tell us a little bit more about what happened in that instance well Sydney festival um were on on target to receive $20,000 as far as i remember from the Israeli embassy in Australia to fund um the Sydney festival is a massive flagship festival which is you know has a very progressive reputation but in the end you saw because of this funding they received from the Israeli embassy about 40% of the acts pull out um a lot of the labor force some of the labor force pull out and even one member of the board at Sydney Festival resign over this um so this was a massive thing and of course you saw the counter mobilization which i think is really essential you know not just enjoying that victory and celebrating it and and learning from it i think it's also important to look at the counter mobilization which was quite easily missed so there's an organization called creative community for peace which was founded as part of the israel emergency alliance so on its tax filings it is the it was the same organization as stand with us the well-known israel yeah. lobby group which works closely with the israel ministry of foreign affairs and also um uh, is funded directly from the israeli prime minister's office now creative community for peace has a huge amount of support across the executive level of the music industry and it put together a letter um which was signed by a lot of these different figures and put forward um to to sort of counter mobilize against the Sydney festival boycott but the important thing to remember is that the creative community for peace um has coordinated with the Israeli consulate in Los Angeles and also <coughs> is um uh it doesn't make a secret of that um and it's also explicitly an anti bds organization right. uh, generally it works on bringing uh very popular musicians over to um 48 to perform um violating bds it's you know directly coordinated with the israeli embassy and consulate on the issue of bringing macy gray in the past it was successful in bringing alicia keys also and the important thing to remember is that post the victory of the bds campaign against sydney festival you've now seen stand with us open a new office in sydney so clearly there is a relation between the movement of stand with us into australia and the investment of that those resources there um and also you know part of the reason that it gained such a uh, success in australia was because of the experience that people have um the very very intense experience that people have with you know a war against the indigenous people of the country so a lot of the indigenous you know from the original over 500 nations which then became australia a lot of them uh identify very closely with the palestinian cause and the experience of the palestinians so yeah you know as i said you had uh, at one point david siegel um israel's consul general in los angeles put it this way about creative community for 
piece that they are effective. This is his words, not mine. They are effective because they work from inside the industry. They have gained a lot of resonance and they are essentially the only organization focused on the cultural boycott. So, you know, when we understand um, the Israel lobby, we understand it as something that has many different moving parts at the same time. And this is, again, the sort of more cultural side of it. And just to make a comment about Stand With Israel, I've actually spoken... Stand um, With Us. Stand With Us, yeah, Stand With Us. Um, I've actually spoken um, at a high school here in Minneapolis a couple of years ago with somebody from Stand With Us. And um, when I was speaking about what was happening in Gaza, and like the blockade and this humanitarian crisis, the other person that was speaking with me was a very young woman wearing fishnets with her skirt literally just below her bum <laughs> and a tank top with all of her cleavage fully showing. And I'm obviously, you know, women can express themselves in any way possible, but the, the way that they dress, but it was a situation where she was just strictly talking about um, how women were free in Israel and that they were on the beat and talking about how they have the beaches and that they have all the parties in Israel and all of this uh, freedom of expression for women. And so I've seen it firsthand where they've also hypersexualized, uh, you know, Israeli tourism. So this to was kind of, from Stand With Us. This was a woman yes, from Stand With Us. A woman from right. Stand With Us. And I was there as the Palestinian hijabi woman. So it was a very- She was debating you. She was- the, Yeah, it was, it was a debate. It was a debate. Yeah. And so obviously there was a very stark contrast in what I was talking about and what she was mm. talking about. Um, and all of the slides and images that she was showing were about women on the beach and um, just partying and having a good time in Israel. Um, and, you know, I was obviously showing like the true face of the occupation and apartheid. And Stand uh, With Us actually in the United States has basically infiltrated much of the education system across the country. They go to a lot of the high schools and the colleges and they dominate the discourse surrounding Israel. And a lot of times they make it about, you know, sharing shared values with the United States. You know, we are a democracy as Israel is a democracy and we have all this freedom of expression. But never is it mentioned what, the, you know, the true face of the occupation um, is for Palestinians. And so when I had gone there to speak and have this debate with this young woman, the organizer after had said, you know, had thanked me for coming and speaking and had actually told me that, this group were, had bullied the school into not allowing Palestinians to come and speak at wow. uh, the high school. So she was so happy that I was able to provide that alternative uh, perspective. And in fact, when the when the debate was done, the majority of the guests in the audience had actually come up to me and thanked me for providing that different perspective because they they hadn't heard it. And yeah. so um, it's just an interesting uh, it's just interesting to see how these groups really, you know, attempt to dominate the discourse around what's truly um, taking place there. And so, you know, part of that domination of the discourse and, you know, making sure that Israel's, uh, you know, the pro-Israel perspective is uh, the perspective that people hear is so that they can crush any sort of dissent and, um, you know, people like yourself and also groups like in the UK that exist right now, like Palestine Action, which has been waging a pretty impressive campaign to occupy and shut down Israeli weapons companies based there. I mean, the thing that the things that Palestine Action are doing is some of the most inspiring and um, you know heroic forms of activism that I've seen taking place in the West. So, can you talk to us about how your music has also inspired um, you know activists in the UK to take action against uh, Israeli weapons? manufacturers well just on that issue of yeah. uh palestine action i think yeah. the thing that needs to be emphasized because it really you know it was covered in, in mint press it was covered in electronic intifada um it wasn't really covered anywhere else really in in the english language there was some reports um in arabic press but essentially you know palestine action what they were able to do was target and in tandem with the local campaign in Oldham you know this was a years-long campaign on a local level which entailed people um, taking uh, flyers and leaflets to people's doors 
with information about this factory, which belonged to Elbit Systems, in the vicinity, people setting up um, stands within the local uh, the local community so that people could actually see um, what this company was doing. You know, Ferranti Technologies was an old um, uh, organization company in Oldham that had worked for many, many years that was procured by Elbit Systems, the largest Israeli arms company. Now, it was procured for £12 million. Now, it was the site, particularly after the May 2001 campaign, um, you saw a lot of action there and, and, and the idea of the um, the arms companies becoming the focal points of protest, whereas in previous years of these campaigns in Palestine, all you'd seen really was the mobilization around the embassy, which has you know been revealed to have significant limitations in terms of as a sort of political um, force in terms of, you know, mobilizing people outside the embassy, that's quite easily managed by the state. However, the targeting of these factories meant that if you're getting them regularly shut down by Palestine action activists, and in tandem with that, a weekly mobilization of local people outside the factory saying, we do not want our community used as a base from which you build weapons which kill Palestinians, and people outside the factory saying, look, I consider those people in Palestine my siblings. You can't keep doing this. What that then led to was Elbit Systems selling selling their subsidiary in Oldham for £9 million. So they sold it at a loss. Um, on top of that, there are nine Elbit Systems sites across the country, um, we know that Elbit were one of the main beneficiaries, one of the main companies involved in building the wall, the wall, sorry, in the West Bank, the apartheid wall, which was, um, you know, many have uh, made the argument in very um, prestigious institutions is illegal. Um, you've also seen Elbit Systems producing the Hermes drone, which was used in the killing of uh, four Palestinian boys on the beach. It didn't shoot, it didn't fire the rocket at them, but it surveilled them, identified them, and then fed that information back to uh, the IDF. Of course, the Hermes drones are being produced in Leicester, which is another place where you have seen significant uprising against the presence of Elbit systems in their community. Essentially, what Palestine Action have done is make the open business dealings of Elbit in communities like Leicester, Birmingham, Oldham, and London to a lesser extent, almost untenable in this wow. country. And the next time, the next time that there's the spectacular acts of violence that we saw mm. in May 2021, those factories will again be shut down. That is an inevitability. And essentially, you are going to have to see Elbit start eventually function in this country through uh, front businesses because it's not sustainable. And that is what has been very, very clearly articulated by Palestine Action because, of course, you don't have the reflection of these very simple, you know, the arms trade treaty, which Britain is a signator of, states very clearly that if you have reason to believe that these exports, these weapons exports, might be used for violations of international humanitarian law, then you should not sell them. All these people are asking, it's not radical, it's not extreme, is, is merely Britain to behave in accordance with its own obligations under the Arms Trade Treaty. Well, and you know what's so interesting is here in the United States, while Israel was committing the massacre against Gaza, you know, last Ramadan in May of 2021, uh, Joe Biden personally approved 650 million worth of missiles to Israel in the middle of a massacre while the world 
you know, had spoken out for, spoken out against this uh, genocide. And people in London were out on the streets protesting. Some of the largest protests actually were in London. It was such a beautiful sight um, to see. And it's quite incredible to see how, you know, the United Kingdom, um, you know, just it's such a small country. It's so powerful, so powerful in terms of the war machine. And and its activism is just so heroic, too. And so, Loki, um, thank you so much for all of your activism, for all of the work that you are doing for Palestine. Um, you know, I've been listening to your music for, you know, about a decade now. I know many of the people that follow Mint Press have also been following your work and your activism and your music. So thank you so much. And just know that we are here to support you no matter what. And our readers and viewers are also here to support you no matter what. So uh, solidarity with you and all of your work. Thank you so much uh, to all of the viewers of Mint Press. I would really encourage all of the viewers um, of Mint Press to get involved with the Patreon and support you know this fantastic and vital work does because the space is becoming smaller and smaller for real um, interrogative um, real um, investigative journalism so thank you very much thank you so much Loki